0: All right. Well, today on the show, we got Megan Wright, John Barsness, and um, we're discussing uh, creating a high performance culture. And uh, just right off the bat, what does that mean to you? What does a high performance culture mean?
1: I think the biggest thing when you're looking at a high performance culture is an atmosphere of trust, an atmosphere of desiring to grow personally and professionally and everybody working together for a common goal. So you're not looking for people who are singularly focused only on their own benefit, but for the greater good. And so when you have a high performance culture, all of those things come together uh, to blend towards growth for the organization. And then by a, as a byproduct, your highest performers are the ones that uh, continue to grow. So you're lifting everybody in the organization.
2: I think it all comes down to desire. Um so internal drivers, knowing that you've got a common goal that you're working towards and you're not comfortable with being content, you know, you're wanting to change, you're wanting to grow. And even if you've reached that next step, that next goal, it's that ability to look and have that futuristic thinking of, all right, this is the next step we got to take and making that plan to get there and being willing to actually see it through.
0: So thinking about, your past work experiences um have you been in both non like high performance cultures kind of lackadaisical content cultures as well as the high performing ones and what would be the the main differences or what what stands out
2: yes (laughs) um it's it is that drive um and lack of vision as well uh you either have lost sheep and people that are just showing up trying to get their work done scraping you know scraping by doing the least amount that they can do to still quote unquote succeed in their role Um, and then you have environments that are thinking beyond willing to dive in change processes and systems and and grow uh, their current position and uh, the company as a whole
1: yeah, I think most people, if they're honest, have probably worked in in a little bit of both. I know for me, early in my career, I was fortunate to work for an organization that had a plan for growth from the very beginning, even if they didn't know what that was going to look like. And you just learned that that was the environment that you had to adapt to. If you were not a high performer, you weren't going to last. And and I learned a lot of discipline in that organization, but I also then spent 20 plus years running a consulting firm and working with organizations who in some cases desired that high performance, but didn't want to actually put the work into it when it came, when push came to shove, they liked the idea of it, but when they actually had to hold to the, to the accountability and the plan for growth and high performance from everybody in the organization, they would back away.
0: I guess that's something I'm curious about is, do you tailor standards to each individual or do you try to make generalized high bar standards?
1: Well, for me, I think you have to have, if you have high standards, you have to hold your high standards. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in an organization is going to be a high performer. That's it, that's just not real. You know, most organizations, if you think about it from a uh, a percentage of employees, you're going to have about 80 to 85% of your employees who are going to be above average to moving towards high performance. Then you're going to have another 10 to 15% that are going to be your highest performers. And then that bottom third is really that group that, uh, that is maybe in, an, in a non-high performance organization are considered your underperformers. In a high performance organization, that middle is above average. And that bottom third is actually moving towards average. So all you, really what you're trying to do in a high-performance organization is lift the entire organization so you don't have a bottom third of underperformers. That's really, to me, what you're looking at with high performance. So the, yes, you have to have high standards. I don't think it's realistic that everybody is going to be able to reach those high standards, though, all the time, but they should be attaining towards those, right? So there isn't just an expectation that if you're not a high-performer, you don't add value to the organization because that's not true either. But you do need to have, you don't want to lose those standards. At least in my opinion, I don't ever want to be a leader in an organization where the high standards get dumbed down because we're afraid of hurting people uh, and not expecting more from them. It's been my experience that the more you expect of people, the more you support them through that expectation, the higher they rise.
0: I I heard of um, some companies that, cut the bottom 10% just on a regular basis annually. And even like the the Roman army, I think, did that, where that's where decimation came from. 10% of the the troops were killed um, just because they didn't perform as well or something to keep people fearful and driving forward. As far as incentives go, because incentives are incredibly powerful, and yes, there's an incentive of the, the common vision and goal, but how do you balance the carrot and the stick per se to drive performance?
2: I think it all comes down to culture. Um, It's implementing that value on the day to day, whether it's the relationships you're developing and the influence that you're developing. Um, Because at the end of the day, if somebody is showing up and they really don't have a desire to do the work, they don't have the capacity to do it and they don't want to grow and they don't want to change, then the example you gave is right. I mean, they're just not a fit at that, you know, in that sense. Um, but if that desire is there, that, that 10% is going to be moving up. You know, it, it, it's not something to be cut off or to be looked down on. It's something to be lifted up so that another 10% can come in.
1: Yeah, the the whole ten percent model really comes goes back to the Jack Welch days at GE. He was notorious for having a rigorous uh, expectation that you were going to cut the bottom third every year, and uh, it did create a, a culture of fear. Now he was one of the he's one of the all time greats in terms of building companies, but he would be the first to tell you even today that he is that that model created more fear than it did actually strengthening the organization but he also did that from a business perspective too it wasn't just people they would cut 10 percent of those parts of their organization that weren't making money so his discipline went across the board and i and i i don't know that i would necessarily want a culture that is built around a fear-based if you're in the bottom third, regardless of whether you're trying or not, you're out the door. I think you do want to, to Megan's point, you want to make sure that you have the right people who have the desire to want to improve themselves. Again, not everybody's going to have the same capacity. That's why you do have high performers in organizations and you have those who are aspiring to be high performers and then you have those who are really good at their job and they don't have a capacity to go beyond where they're at. I think sometimes we make the mistake that we assume that everybody wants to grow in capacity. And even if they do, some people just don't have that capacity. So not everybody can sit in the senior leadership role. Many people actually sit in that role and can't do it very well. Uh, and And we just make this assumption that there has to be a hierarchy, right? And that corporate ladder me- mentality that is that is there, that if you're not moving up, you're you're not moving at all. And i I take a very different approach to that. I actually think that you can you can improve people's willingness to do more without throwing more work at them because you you trigger in them the things that they're passionate about. And so somebody could stay in the same role and just continue to expand their influence in that role without ever moving up, without ever managing a, a, a team or a department or a part of the organization or be a CEO. Uh, and so I think we've, we sometimes classify things and we actually hinder opportunities for high performance.
0: That's good. So that's clarifying kind of my misperception which is high performance doesn't necessarily mean leadership. Is that what you're saying that you don't have to be a leader to be a high performer?
1: Well, I I would say yes and no. I would but I would I would argue that anybody who's a high performer is likely a leader. They just don't have the title. And so again, that's a perception issue. If you don't have a leadership title, somehow you're not a leader. I there are some great leaders in our organization today, who don't have a leadership title. They don't manage a, per- a person. They don't manage a department. And I would consider them to be great leaders. Uh, I've also had people in my own organization that that was that way. We we had a very flat organization uh, for most of the 20 years that I owned uh, my business. And mo- so most of them just had a, a critical area in which they managed. They were an expert in a certain field they were some of the best leaders I've ever been around. And so I think that's another piece of the um, American way, if you will, of thinking about how you grow organizations, which is, well, if you're not interested in leading others or being a senior leader, that somehow you're not going to have leadership capacity. And I think in a high performance organization, you actually have the opposite. You actually have everybody who takes ownership of what they do which is ultimately being a leader. And if you're stepping forward and taking a, a ownership of what you're responsible for, that you take ownership of building up people around you as opposed to stepping on their back to get a, to get ahead, uh, I would consider that to be leadership.
0: You know, one of the classic tensions with, I guess, high performance and growth and evolution of uh, employees is empowering them and giving them more authority. And sometimes... It's a chicken and the egg problem where you give them something that they might not be ready to handle, um, but they need that to grow. And how do you think about mitigating risk and also empowering leaders to grow into potential? And how how do you uh, determine if they're ready for more responsibility or a bigger project or um, something along those lines?
2: I'm going to keep harking on desire. Um, I think that there's naturally always going to be a resistance to change, but I think that resistance to change isn't a resistance to change. It's a fear of loss. You know, it's a fear of not being comfortable and content and what you're used to on your day-to-day and the unknown of, of what that next step could look like so to mitigate that it's it's showing them the value of what that next next step could look like and where that could get them um and how it could honestly make their life easier (laughs) in a sense or what value it could add to them as well so it's it's that influence piece and also just reframing the thought of all right you're not resistant to change you're afraid of losing the comfort that you're in so let's get a little uncomfortable and Trust me, it's going to be okay. But
0: <laughs> yeah. well, what about the the risk of uh, messing up a relationship with the customer?
2: That's where it, I mean, you have that back support. And if you're doing it right, that person's not an island alone dealing with something that's new. Um, I mean, John and I are a great example of this. I stepped into a role that I never thought I would be in, Um but I mean that fear of making a mistake isn't there cuz I'm comfortable in approaching him with open communication on on anything that I have questions with and and knowing that that support is going to be there and he's got my back no matter what on it unless I'm just an idiot so
1: which which she's not but <laughs> I think I think what she what she brings up is a is a is an important part of that whole questions you're asking about the risk reward. And, and how do you know as a leader, especially that people are able to step into something? You you can't put people out to Megan's analogy. You can't put them out on an island and, and then expect them to do well. So those leaders or managers who say, hey, I'm just going to give you empowerment by throwing something at you and then walking away and abdicating leadership. Uh, that That's a recipe for failure. It, it's also not a high performance culture. A high performance culture trains their managers to build relationship with people so that you get to know what they're passionate about, where their skill sets are, and the really good leaders start giving people opportunities to do those things before they have to actually have ownership of it. Um, and then you have to gauge that. If somebody is really struggling or they're really not good at it, you have to be willing to, to have that conversation and say, hey, I was the one that screwed this up. I thought you could handle this. That's not on you. That's on me. And and then be able to move them in, an, in another area. But it, it starts with the foundation of a, of a relationship. If you don't know who your people are, if you're a leader, you don't know the capabilities that people have. You don't know the desire they have to grow or where they want to go or are able to ask questions around that to get to that answer then you're just shooting in the dark and that's and that's a dangerous place for everybody to be including the organization so high performance creates a culture in which it's built on that common purpose but then leaders are desire to see people grow and I always say this I like to have people on my team who are smarter than me who are better than me in most areas because if I'm the smartest one in the room we're in trouble Because I'm not getting everybody's best then and I'm not helping the organization. And so my goal always is to be able to promote people well above where my pay grade is uh, and where my capacity is. Because I've experienced that for myself. And and I've watched when people are able to take on a role that I thought I was doing pretty damn good at. And then they take over and it just explodes. And I went, well, at least I can take a little bit of credit for identifying that they had talent. Uh, I can't necessarily take any more credit than that. But
0: John, as, uh, as part of the executive leadership team, I'm curious So you, how you think about this is when you get these high performers in the organization, you start developing them part of the core value of a high performer is that they're continuing to grow and learn and improve. What happens when there's a certain ceiling in the company? Are, are, are you always looking to open up new divisions and grow as a company? Or have you had experiences in the past where you lost talented people because there wasn't room to grow and they felt uh, a dead end?
1: Well, I'll start by saying this. There's the old adage that the the CEO comes to the CFO and says, hey, why are we spending so much money on training and development? We're just going to lose really good people. And the CFO looks at him and says, what happens if we don't? And so I think the reality is, you are going to lose high performers sometimes because you have too many of them. The other example is I've worked with a lot of organizations uh, helping them in succession planning, especially for the CEO role. The organizations who do this really well create a pipeline of people who can eventually take on that CEO role. And when you get to that point, and and for example, they might have three candidates in their organization for that that CEO role because that person is leaving uh, for retirement. For that next 12 to 18 months, they're developing all three with the intent that one of them is going to become the CEO. In most organizations, when that happens, the other two prospects for the CEO are leaving because that's the role they wanted. The interesting thing is, and I've worked with companies like this, those two that left boomerang back at some point because they were able to take something that they learned there to become a CEO of another company. And then they came back maybe as the next CEO 10 or 15 years later. And so that's the culture I would like to be a part of and, and what I would like to be able to build here at, at FCP is that we have too many that we don't know what to necessarily do with, because then it challenges us as senior leaders to do what, exactly what you said, which is how do we find more ways to grow? As an organization, you're always looking for something more, uh, not because it's more revenue or more profit. It's, it's adding value to your to your marketplace. And as you do that, you're creating more opportunities for your highest performers. But you can't be afraid of losing people because you're overdeveloping them. That's the fear most organizations have. well, I, and and quite frankly, it starts at the management level. Well, I don't want to work with that. I don't want my that person on my team uh, to to improve because they're going to take my job. We have a saying around here that we expect you to to uh, have people replace you. That's the expectation is that you are training people so that you can be replaced. not because you necessarily need to go somewhere else there's going to be another opportunity for you. And that's the the hope, is that when you build a high-performance culture, that entire funnel wants that. So as a senior leader, I'm hoping that I have one or two people that can take on what I'm doing today, because my hope is that when we're building the organization, there's going to be another opportunity for me here. And if there isn't, that's not a bad thing either. That means I can go somewhere else, but I've created space for others to take on those roles.
0: I'm gonna ask you a question. I almost feel like I already know the answer, but I want I want to hear. Maybe, maybe I'm still gonna ask it because in um, and it's when hiring high performers or looking for talent. And I'm sure I think you're gonna say you know motivation and drive. But beyond that, people can fake it. You know, people can come into an interview and fake uh, put on a great show and. Then they flame out once they get the job. What are, how do you dig deeper and, and what do you think you, what are some telltale signs of that you look for in the interview process?
2: That is a loaded question. I do not like you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kidding. You're right, though. I mean, people can fake it, people can interview really well, and you're not going to know what's going to show up until they actually get here. Um, That's why when you're looking at the personality assessments, the TTIs and all of that, it's actually very important because a lot of those hidden qualities about a person get brought out Mm -hmm. in that assessment. Um, And so you're able to actually dig in, understand what makes a person a person, which, you know, the psychology behind it is amazing which I love, and that's where those follow-up interviews after that assessment are very helpful because you can ask more pointed and direct questions that you know, may come across as harsh or hard to understand or, wow, they're really drilling into me. Um, but at the end of the day, if somebody's lying and if somebody is you know, just really good at interviewing and they show up, what benefit is it going to be for them to be here? Um, and to face that pressure and then just have to turn around and leave mm-hmm. because it wasn't a good fit for them. So I, the way that we have the process structured is so that a lot of those details can come out, um, and so it's a benefit for us but also a benefit for the candidates so they're not taking on a role that may sound nice but yeah. <laughs> may not be a fit.
1: Yeah, I think it starts, too, with the manager knowing – not just what they're hiring for, because that's the skill set, right? And to me, those are the table stakes. If they don't have a skill set that you're looking for, I'm not sure why you're even interviewing them. It's more about that personality piece that Megan talked about. It's why we use the, the assessment tool, TTI, because it allows us to get deeper into the psyche of where people are, what motivates and drives them, uh, and as managers, then we have to be clear about what it is that are non-negotiables for us and our team. And I look at our team and, and we have a very robust interview process here at FCP anyway, even for some of our entry-level positions, there's multiple checkpoints uh, along the way. And more times than not, people will opt out of the process if they, are, uh, if they know that they're not going to be the right fit. And sometimes you make hiring mistakes. I think the biggest thing that you can do from that is learn from it and then make the change sooner than later. I think the biggest challenge sometimes is that you know you made a mistake and you just keep trying to fight through it, hoping that something's going to change and that's not going to be helpful. It's, al- it's also why you don't build a high performance culture because you're always trying to fit a job for a person as opposed to recognizing what you need, both in the personality and the and the intangible skills and the skill sets. And so at some point you have to make some tough decisions, but that's why we take our time, especially with our salaried hires. And there's a lot of people that go, really, I got to go through that many interviews. Yes, because it's just for their benefit as much as it is for us as an organization. Uh, And, and I think we do a pretty good job of that. We obviously can do better. And, and I think in a high performance organization, you're always looking to, to, to improve, but without those tools and without that time, you're gonna just hire because you have a need. And I fall into this trap often more times than I'd like to admit, of trying to hire because I just want that position filled because I don't want to deal with it anymore. And, and and I'm lucky to have people like Megan and others around me that go, yeah, no, we're not doing that. we're gonna we're gonna do this the right way, and they're willing to come into my office and say, yeah, we're going to slow down, and I'm and I like that. Uh, again, I think that's a hallmark of a of a high performance organization. People are not afraid to come into senior leaders or anybody else and say, "I disagree with you." I, that that's a to me that's a hallmark of a high performance organization, and senior leaders are willing to take it. They're they're willing to listen to it and go yeah, you know what? I screwed that up. And, and I appreciate the feedback that candor is really a a hallmark of a high performance organization because there's trust there.
2: The culture that's built here is going to overflow into the, our client relationships. And so if, if this is strong and this is a strong foundation, that communication is inevitably going to go out to where our hands are reaching out. If you want to use that analogy, um, So, yeah, there's going to be a huge benefit to it. And there is a huge benefit to it because we're meeting those client demands. We're building that relationship. We're establishing that influence. And they're going to want to keep coming back to us, at least I hope, if they value that.
1: Yeah. And I think from a business strategy standpoint, it also does create the discipline around what you're actually going after. Because here's the other thing that happens within your own culture if you are just chasing revenue, as an organization, if you're just going to grab any revenue you can find and you're signing up poor clients, you're signing up bad projects in our case, whatever it might be, your high performers are going to go, well, this is stupid. Why are we working this hard for somebody that doesn't re- respect what we do, doesn't value what we do. So I think from a business strategy standpoint, you would be remiss if you didn't actually have that same discipline in talking about it. One of the things that we do really well here, and and our ownership group absolutely does this uh, in such a powerful way, is we talk about who we are as a culture most of the presentations we give about our company have very little to do with the actual services we offer it's a very small portion of actually any presentation we talk about the infrastructure we talk about the the way in which we uh, treat each other we the way we value the industry that we're in and the work that we do uh, and that that does make a difference we have some very large clients uh, who look at us and say wow I can't believe you guys have that kind of resourcing or spend that kind of money or spend that kind of time to create that culture. So it does attract the right clients. Just like it, this type of a culture will attract the right employees, it's gonna attract the right clients. And, but it starts with a with a business d- discipline to say, yeah, we're not gonna do that because they don't value what we offer. Uh, when I ran my own business, I learned the hard way in some ways uh, that when you started to say no to clients, you actually made more money because you were attracting the ones that made the most sense for you. You weren't just chasing revenue, hoping that you were going to get uh, a dollar and then f- figure it out, make it work. Uh, and I think that's that's another mistake that non-high-performing organizations make is that they're just chasing the almighty dollar at the expense of their culture.
0: So say there's a company out there listening that doesn't feel like they're a high-performance culture. Like is the only like how can they start making steps towards that without having to start from scratch and blow up the whole team like like they do in sports leagues?
2: Establish their values. Um, they have to know what high performance means and what their culture is. Uh, so they really need to define what their values are and and what they're going to be driving that company towards, and then they can figure out how to implement it.
1: Yeah. I think if they're struggling right now and they don't view themselves as a high performing culture, I think it does start with that foundation, but it also, they have to ask the question, why don't we think we're successful right now? Uh, and, and then you do build around what it means to have success. One of the things that we do here, uh, and we're still, this is a work in progress, by the way, this is, we're not, I I certainly don't want everybody to go, wow, that's a, they got everything together because we don't. Um, but One of the things that we have been emphasizing, especially this year, is what does success actually look like? What does it mean for your role, for your department, for your part of the organization? Because again, if you don't know what success is going to look like, how do you know you're a high performer or not? And so you have to be able to have that. So for us as an organization, we know high performance is tied directly to our core values. And our core values drive directly to our value to our customers. And so, yes, we have financial goals that we're reaching. Yes, we have uh, market penetration goals that we have in place, but all of those are a byproduct of us understanding that excellence for us means providing great quality service to our clients and treating everyone that we come into contact with in the best possible way, respect, dignity, and worth. And if we do those things, then the byproduct of financial success is going to follow. We firmly believe that. Now, it doesn't mean that you just have nice kumbaya moments all the time. I would also argue that a values-based organization or a high-performance culture is one of the hardest to manage in because there are clear lines. Uh, When you don't have a clarity on what your value system is in an organization, it's easy to just slide all over the place because you can make situational decisions and it doesn't actually rub against your core values. When you're when you're starting to do this as an organization, building from your foundation of your values to your high performance and identifying what success looks like, it's really difficult because then the things that are not working become magnified, the people who are not a fit become magnified. And, and so then you have to make tough decisions. So it is not an, a soft, squishy culture. Uh, at least not that when you do it right, but you also surround yourself with a bunch of people who believe that. Right. And so then it just starts to multiply. It's, I always use the, the analogy of a flywheel. It takes a long time to get that sucker moving, but as soon as you do, it's just constantly going. And that's, you know, I would say we are still in the pushing it and making it move. But I think we've got a lot of momentum going in that direction, but it, it's because we're committed to it.
0: And how, how often should somebody be reviewing performance with people and, and investing in um, development? And what, is there a percentage? Is there a balance of the week, a month, year? Is it just, is it formal or is it sometimes informal?
2: Both. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, You're developing a culture um, and culture doesn't just stick to paper and it's not just a quarterly review that, I mean, obviously having that defined direction um, and that defined definition of what success looks like in individual roles and a manager that's leading in that way, um, it moves cohesively and nicely. But it's the day to day small interactions that are developing influence um, and building building that trust, uh, building the person up, building the relationship to be stronger. Uh, it's going to actually drive it in that direction,
1: yeah, uh, Megan would will probably chuckle a little bit when I say this. I hate programs i it you know it's so easy to say. Yep. We're going to just put a a culture program together. We're just going to, and, and don't get me wrong. There's a need for that to a certain degree, but you really do get it sticky when it's when it becomes everything that you are doing in your organization is driven towards developing your people when you're, and as a manager, and I have a manager now that I, I remind him every morning, He's got the 80-20 rule. 80% of his time needs to be spent with his team. Twenty 10% of his time is his thinking time, which he hates as well. And then 10% of his time is actually doing. We sometimes invert that completely as managers. We spend 80% of our time doing something and we miss the opportunity to actually influence and work with people. So we do have quarterly reviews that we that we do. We have an annual review. But it really happens in the day-to-day moments. It happens in the weekly conversations. And If those conversations are not leading towards, how can I get better? How can I help you get better? Then you're not actually developing people. We also are moving towards having everybody in the organization have a development plan. And in a high performance organization, development plan does not mean you are on a performance improvement plan. In, in underperforming organizations or organizations that don't understand what high performance looks like. You use the word development and everybody runs the other way because they think they're getting fired. And so we want that culture. Our managers are doing this now. We have a dedicated time for coaching with many of our people in the organization. And that's something that we just are going to start and continue to build towards. So that's how you get this momentum but it has to be in the routines of every day. That's why I jokingly say I don't like programs. I don't like them because often what it does is take you away from your day-to-day. And so the only way programs really work is if you're introducing something, you're reinforcing something, and then you're having them take action in their day-to-day. And if that's not happening, then the program is great. I go to a conference and what happens? You get a great bounce coming out of it. Oh, that was awesome. Look at all these things we learned. We're going back to our office. We're gonna do these things. And what do you do? You get back to your office and then you go back to what you always do. Cause you think of the dauntingness of taking a program or you think it's so easy. Well, that guy got up on stage and he talked for 20 minutes and wow, they got a great organization. And they got a great culture. And here's the three bullet points. Well, sweet. It was 20 minutes of a conversation. All of the things that they had to do to build that culture never get talked about in a conference because that's not the design of a conference, but it is also understanding that it is the hard work. You've got to invest the time, the money, and and have the attitude that it's worth it because it is going to mean that you have to spend more time with people. And most people managers, it's the last thing they sometimes think about, which is the unfortunate part. Sorry, I get a little bit passionate about this, don't I? I love
0: that. Yeah, Yeah, so it's it's a lifestyle. All right, you can
2: take over. No,
1: no.
0: (laughs) Well, I think we're we're uh, wrapping up here. We got it's one fifty one. Basically, just kind of, I'm curious from kind of get a little bit more personalized with both of you. If there's one thing that you're working on yourself right now, moving forward, that you feel like you want to see higher performance from yourself. If there's something that you're trying to de-
1: uh, develop,
2: that is another loaded question. <laughs>
0: <laughs> she, by
1: the way, she loves to think about self-development and and critiquing herself. She just she absolutely loves to evaluate. Well, I'm herself. I'm just
2: going to like make it large, and it just it just comes down to self-awareness. You know, it the coaching aspect of it brings up blind spots, so it's like I can't directly always answer like what my blind spot is um but being called out on that isn't ever fun but that self-awareness and that willingness to be able to have it subconsciously there in my brain every day so that when situations arise it's like oh yeah that's the trigger i actually need to pay attention to how i'm handling this so that i can develop Mm -hmm. it and continue to grow it hopefully that answers your question (laughs) do i sound like a politician
1: (laughs) (laughs)
0: uh, I would actually,
1: I would actually ask her the same thing about me, about what I, what she knows I am working on or that she thinks I should be working on. Uh, And, and I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I, I, but I do actually value what people, other things people think I should be working on because I can have a laundry list of things that I want to be working on, but if they don't actually help the organization or my team, uh, To Megan's point, it's a blind spot for a reason. If it was, if we knew it all the time, it wouldn't be a blind spot. So I'm going to put her on the spot and say, "What should I be working on?"
2: That's not fair. (laughs) (laughs) Do I have to answer? (laughs) It's just no. You know, not that I, I not that I like don't want to say something. I just need a moment to
0: well.
1: Yeah, well, that's fine. I, well, 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 I give her a moment to think about it because I did put her on the spot, folks. I didn't. This isn't prepared. <laughs> if you can tell at all by this podcast, it's not <laughs> scripted. Um, for me, I know that I have to work on patience uh, because mm. I have high expectations for myself and for the people around me. I can get. Uh, I can get frustrated easily because I expect things to happen faster or for people to get it uh, faster. Uh, And the recognition that that isn't real Uh, and it's not a, it's not anything other than my own expectations for things. It's not about people not performing well uh, because there's a lot of growth in uh, in everybody who is trying to become a high performer. And I have to be able to to step back and actually recognize those small wins, and so that's an area for me to be able to make sure I also communicate the appreciation for the effort people are putting in, as opposed to just harping on uh, the things that should be doing. We should be doing better. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's an area that I have to work on. She she took a moment, so here we go.
2: No, you took my answer. It, it is just that that. The gap of I, you've got an amazing vision for where things are going to go and I know that we'll get there but it is having the patience and taking the time um, to celebrate the small wins empathy <laughs> you just yes. keep throwing empathy at you. <laughs> yes. that's probably the one thing I hark on is I'm a very empathetic person and so I think everybody could win from a little more empathy.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt about that. I mean, it's one of the again, it's one of the benefits of being surrounded by people who are uh, have different skill sets and different competencies than you have as a leader. It's easy to just hire a bunch of people who are exactly like you and think exactly the way you do because that's comfortable. It's easy then. Everybody's just like, oh yeah, I'm not going to say anything because it's uh, this is this great. I want people who disagree, uh, especially around the difference between blending and and balance. Uh, it's it's always, but that that healthy debate for me is is actually really good, because I do take it. If I respect somebody, I'm gonna take their whatever they have to say, even if it's the difficult things uh that i have caused uh, that i i want to hear that because otherwise you don't grow as a leader either i mean it's easy for me to sit here and say well i've been doing this for a very long time and uh and i think i'm pretty good at some things not very many things but some things and i can look at that and go well great now i don't have to work on myself i've i've arrived in a certain position and that's a, I hate to say it, it's one of the dumbest things I've ever heard for people. Uh, and I, I think it is, a, It is. you never arrive in leadership. You never, ever are going to find the end of your journey while you're still on it. And so for me, it's always about where can I grow and where can I learn? I was just looking at it again this morning and, and my own development plan and went, yeah, I, I need more pages because there's a lot that ha- has to be d- done, but that gives me, uh, as much as it's un- uncomfortable and painful, it's also something that keeps me grounded because I know that I, I, I still have a long way to go.
0: That's awesome. Um, as wrapping up here, any final thoughts, anything that we didn't cover questions should have been asked.
1: I think for anybody out there who's looking to be a part of a, of a high performance organization and you're happy where you are, but you may not feel like there is that high performance. Talk to start with yourself and then start with your team. You know, it doesn't have to be a major step. And if you're a CEO or a senior leader in your organization, take my advice, don't do what I do, which is splash it all out there and hope that everybody gets there faster. Take the one small step yourself because it is going to be a long road, but it's well worth it. So, um, you know, that would be my my big thing. And for any individual person out there that wants to uh, be a high performer, put the work in. Put the work in. It doesn't happen just because you want it to or because you read a book or because you go to a conference. You got to put the work in.
2: Thanks for listening. To learn more, visit fcpservices.com.
0: Until next time, remember, people drive
1: growth.